I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, as the population grows and lives longer, dementia diagnoses are becoming more and more common, and getting the proper support and care is increasingly challenging. One of the biggest mistakes we make is we set dementia support and care like a job that anybody could do. It's the most difficult kind of work you can do. And so that's step one. And step two is you've got to take care of yourself or we will simply have two broken human beings. And later, from heart wrench to heartache, one woman's personal journey caring for her father. They go through this period, they call it shadowing, I think, where they don't want to lose sight of you. It's like you're an island and they're out to sea and if they lose sight of you, they're afraid they're going to drown. Finally, admitted defeat after about six months. I, I can't, I have, I have to put him into a community. Such a wrenching decision because I felt like a failure. Understanding and acknowledging the challenges of dementia care while retaining compassion and hope. That's coming up on Life Examined. The numbers are scary. Of the top 10 diseases affecting Americans today, only one is on the increase, dementia. With an aging and growing population, global forecasts project that by 2050, 153 million people will be living with dementia worldwide. That's up from 57 million in 2019. And each year, more than 11 million Americans become the primary caretakers for friends and family. Unpaid and untrained, they're forced into a new reality, straddling two worlds. It's exhausting, frustrating, and some would say depressing. Professional care is expensive, and the cost of good memory facilities is prohibitive. It's estimated that 70% of all Medicare and Medicaid costs by 2028 will be for dementia care. So what's the latest we know about dementia and Alzheimer's? Could lifestyle changes prevent memory decline? What are our common misperceptions, and why is experienced care so crucial, not just for the patient, but also for the caregiver? In her book, Understanding the Changing Brain, A Positive Approach to Dementia Care, author Tipa Snow shares some best practices and approaches and emphasizes that, quote, until there's a cure, there is care. Snow is an occupational therapist and a leading advocate with over 40 years of experience working with dementia patients. She's also the founder of Positive Approach to Care. Tipa Snow, welcome to Life Examined. Uh, Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So the first thing I want to get to is just trying to find the right language to talk about dementia in terms of what it is. I mean, you know, I was trained in psychology, so we call things disorders. Other people call <laughs> things illnesses or degenerative disorders. I like, I, I'd love for you just to give us a framework of talking about what dementia is. Uh, at least we can start with the medical terms. Okay. So dementia is actually a syndrome, a collection of symptoms that fit under an umbrella. And what it refers to is brain changes, changes in your brain, chemistry and structures that is related to destruction of tissue. Mm. And when we have destruction of tissue, we have impairment of function. So unfortunately, dementia is progressive and it's chronic, meaning it will change over time. It will become more profound over time and it's not fixable. Mm. However, for all that we lose, there are things that we keep. And so one of the tricky parts is that people may be losing abilities, but they're often developing new abilities, but we don't tend to think of it that way. And it's really sort of important that we look beyond the disease state of the brain and look at the function of the human being. Mm. Why do some people get it and some people don't? Uh, the magic question. Um, <laughs> sometimes there's some genetics involved because there is genetic coding that increase risks or in some cases sort of says, yeah, that's on your radar. But in other cases, it's called spontaneous. And we believe it's more related to a lifetime of experiences and a lifestyle. Hmm. So in that one, we have some risk reduction strategies. I mean, we might want to consider. Mm, okay, so like a lot of what we're learning about disease or disorders, there's, you know, there's a genetic component, and then there's an environmental component. Do I, I have that right? You do. And this is where it gets a little tricky, because in the brain, we have a micro environment, and then we have the human environment, and then we have the sort of big environment that we live in. So lots of environments to consider. (laughs) Yes, many, many, of course. But if I just kind of stay with, I know, questions that those listening may have, I mean, 
do we know what the difference is, or maybe you can explain the difference between Alzheimer's and dementia? Does one lead to the other? What's the correlation? <laughs> okay, so this is that, oh, I wish we'd come up with the word uh, neurodegeneration long before we ever found the word Alzheimer's. Uh. Alzheimer's was a physician who discovered that when people passed away from the thing they had, one woman actually, a young woman, um, she had plaques and tangles in her brain and it was unique. And so he got to name it. And so it was called Alzheimer's disease, named after the doctor, not the woman. Um, like we have Parkinson's or we have Lewy body. Oh, well, then there's other dementias. So the big category is a dementia or neurodegeneration. And under that umbrella of neurodegeneration, we have Alzheimer's, we have Lewy body, we have frontal temporal dementias, we have Huntington's another physician, um, we have vascular dementias. So what we know is they're all dementias, but how their dementias varies. Hmm. So if you could just for a second, maybe describe the difference between the two, would you be able to do that? Yeah. So dementia means at least two parts of your brain are actively dying. It means it's going to progress and it's going to spread through other parts of your brain. It means that we currently don't have a cure or a fix or a stop to it, and we can't prevent it from happening yet. We also know that ultimately, if nothing else results in your demise, it, it can in fact result in your death because it destroys so much brain tissue, you can't continue to live. Mm. However, um, each of the different dementias we believe is caused by a different set of features. And so with Alzheimer's, it's abnormal proteins and the abnormal proteins of note are beta amyloid proteins and tau proteins. Hmm. Um, with frontal temporal dementia, it's almost all tau pathology. So it's a different pattern of attack on the brain and a different protein problem. And then with Lewy body, you got synuclein protein. And so it's attacking the brain differently. And that protein is very common that we see it with uh, Parkinson's disease. Wow. <laughs> Did that uh, help? <laughs> it, it, you know, and I think once you get into any subject, whether it's this, you realize the diversity within it, right? Mm -hmm. We we have these kind of very crude labels we slap on things, thinking they uh, that's the totality of of you know the, the disease. But what I'm hearing mm -hmm. is that within anything, there's an incredible amount of complexity. No. Yeah, and what's really interesting is that each human being you meet with any kind of dementia was a human being before they developed their dementia. And so you still see lots of pieces and parts that are, are that person and yet not like they were before. Mm. And so really acknowledging first you're a human, then you develop conditions and those conditions certainly affect your way of being human, but not your humanity. Yeah, of course. Are there a handful of symptoms that that you could tell us about, or do they happen to kind of be all over the board? I mean, what, what are some indicators that we should know about when it comes to dementia? Yeah. It's tricky because I have to know you as a baseline. Mm. You have to have baselines on someone to be accurate in, are we seeing a change in thinking, in language, in visual skills, in uh, motor planning skills, in sequencing abilities mm. or initiation abilities? Um, is there a change in irritability and uh, impulsiveness and decision-making? Is there a shift in um, the ability to hold on to new data? Or is it an inability to retrieve information that I typically have on hand and I, I can't think of the way to do that? Or is it that I'm getting overwhelmed by sensory experiences that I didn't used to have problems mm. with, but boy, am I doing it now? Or I, I can't do things that I do on an annual basis. Like yeah. suddenly the taxes are, whoa, I, I'm just going to put them to the side. Or mm -hmm. that's, Those are sort of ballpark figures. Are there tests that, that reveal mm. if one has dementia? Oh, well, we're getting closer. Unfortunately, a lot of the screening tools are so crude that they won't help a majority of individuals really notice things real early in the condition because um, they're not, they, the ceiling is too low in the, or the, you know, the bottom is too high or mm. you know, it's, it's challenging because 
there are some things we can do. There is neuro, nowadays, we've got genetic testing, which will tell us the risk, but it won't necessarily tell us yes or no. Uh, we can look for abnormal protein in the cerebral spinal fluid, or we can look at a PET scan, which allows us to look at a living human brain in action and see where its glucose metabolism is, or where we have the beta amyloid or the tau or the, in the synuclein protein buildup where we shouldn't. Um, we can look at failures, but that has to happen. We're talking about five to 20 years in, hmm. and that's tricky because it's already been going on for quite some time before the brain can't, um, we call compensate for it. Mm -hmm. And it must just be hard, I'm imagining, or maybe it was to come up with an exact diagnosis. I mean, some of the things you talked about could splinter off into a different diagnosis or into a mental disorder, right? Or into things that you, that a psychiatrist would be more equipped to handle or a therapist. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm just, I, I, I'd imagine for someone like yourself in the field, there's probably been years of having to kind of muddle through answers and, and diagnoses to try mm -hmm. and get to um, the real answer. Well, and let's add in that for people living with dementia, 50% of everyone with dementia will develop depression yeah, as well as dementia because of the chemical shifts. And somewhere around 70% of people with dementia will develop an anxiety condition that is pretty frequent yeah. because all of a sudden I'm in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong people and I, and I get anxious or frightened or angry. And so um, it's tricky. And so people also with those conditions are more at risk for developing dementias. <laughs> so right, right. It, it is right, tricky, right. and which is, you know, why I truly believe we all need to be somewhat confident and competent in providing support because you, we actually are very poor at recognizing early on when somebody's showing signs. And about 80% of the time, it's only by mid-state dementia that we're getting an accurate evaluation of what's going on. How do you have... A, a thoughtful, empathic, constructive conversation with someone who may be displaying symptoms. I feel like we're just, <laughs> humans are just bad communicators. We don't know how to do this stuff generally. And so I, I'm curious as to like, what would you, what would you provide as like a roadmap for that kind of a thing? So I'd say we're lazy communicators. Okay. We rely on language a lot. And yet, that's not what people most pay attention to. It's the nonverbal that we we really notice. So if I were to go, oh, hey, listen, I have something. I, I'd love to ask you something. Hmm. What causes you to want to answer me or, or get involved with me, do you think? Oh, um, I, I mean, I think just a display of, yeah, as you said, maybe nonverbal enthusiasm, the ability to listen, uh, body language stuff like that, well, right? You, but you can't see me. We're on the radio. Right. So I heard inflections in the voice. I heard excitement. Uh, uh, right. Uh-huh. Okay. So you're using the rhythm of my voice and the energy I put into it. And so if I just say, ooh, right here, mm -hmm. and I tap my chest and I point to your chest, what do you think you would automatically do if I'm doing that without thinking? Uh, I tap my own chest? I, you, I, and you might, if I look down at my chest and then point to yours, what might you do then? I, I don't mimic. I don't know. Just keep doing the you same thing. Right. No, you would look down at your chest and that's when I could show you have coffee on it. Mm -hmm. You've dropped, mm -hmm. you dribble coffee because your ability to hold a cup upright while you bring it towards your mouth where gravity's involved, mm -hmm. the fine detail of holding a cup upright when you bring it up from a table to your mouth, when you're not thinking it tips a little bit and you've dribbled coffee, which you can't see especially right. you're having trouble with your visual field because you're paying attention to other things. And it's only when I gesture like that, that you notice. And I say, tell you what, why don't we, why don't we change that shirt? Yeah. That's real different than you've got coffee all down the front of you. I'm not, you can't go out looking like that. Mm. Come on, dad, change your shirt. Does that sound different? Oh yeah, I mean that 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 sounds almost accusatory and condescending, and yeah, oh. very different. Uh huh. Yeah, who would you want to spend more time with? I'd say the former. <laughs> uh -huh. and yet, without training, I might go back to something I might have said. Uh, yeah, I would I would argue that probably not the best parenting skill either. Mm. Um, but it's that ability to be curious and to get the other person curious about something and to engage in something mutually rather than feeling like, well, 
she's got dementia. How's she going to do this? Instead of, huh, she has some impairment. What has she got that I can work with? Hmm. I, I'd love for you to kind of continue down that that line of, mm-hmm. of thinking because you've spent so many years working with patients with dementia. So like what what are some of the things you would like to tell our listeners that are, you know, that may someday have to encounter this or deal with it? Um, I don't, I don't even use the word deal with it. I mean, just be with it really. Be with someone who's showing signs. So ask me a question you think you might ask if we were on the street and you came across me and you're like, you're turned around and you don't know how to get where you want to be. What might you say? If, if I'm the one kind of in distress, yeah, lost? you're the one who's in distress and you're lost and you need some help. What might you say to me? I, I would say, I, I, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm lost. I don't know where I am right now. Oh, I, I, uh-huh. wow. Well, that's not good. So you're lost and you don't know where you are. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. So is do you think you want to be somewhere near here or is it in a really different place? I think it's I want to be near here somewhere. I'm yeah. near here. Uh-huh. Now, I'm, I'm curious, were you with somebody or have you been by yourself all day? I've been I've been by myself all day. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now you were heading somewhere, though, I bet you got turned around. That's it. Yep. I thought I just don't know where I am now, but I, I, I know uh-huh. I was trying to get somewhere. Uh-huh. You were trying to get somewhere. Mm-hmm. Well, tell you what, let's walk together for a second and see if anything starts to look familiar. Because frankly, you know, I'm not sure where you're going either, but I'd rather go with you than just have you be lost if if we could at least go together. Maybe we'll notice something that helps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'd like oh, to try you got that. your yeah. phone on you? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tell you what, let's push the button and see if anything pops up on it that maybe might help us out. Mm, okay. Yeah. So the first was to get connected to you. Right. And the first was acknowledge, boy, this is not a good place to be. Yeah. And then my brain was thinking, okay, well, how can I actually get us somewhere? And it's like, well, let's look at his resources because, I mean, I don't know you from Joe, Mm -hmm. but, you know, in this moment, clearly, if you're willing to approach a stranger, you're not in a good place. Right. Yeah. And this to me, again, is, is my training in, in psychology. This is kind of like like joining the client or the patient mm-hmm. in, in where they are. It's kind of, it's jumping into their world with them and saying, hey, here we are together. What what are we going to do together to kind of work with this? And I, I find that, it's, I find it to be a very kind of beautiful, disarming way to be really almost with anybody. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's not about dementia. It's just when someone's in need, we sort of decide, am I going to partner with you? Or am I going to leave you in need and walk away? Mm. Is it fair to mm-hmm. say that this is kind of how sometimes we are with people that are quite a bit younger than us, that are mm-hmm. learning still, that are making their way in the world? Or is this just a way that, you know, we would be specifically with someone in, with dementia? Um, I use it pretty much. And what ends up happening is everybody who works with us says, you know, this works with teenagers. And it's like, Oh, really? Tell me about it. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, oh, this works with kids. Oh, this works with, you know, because what we find, this works in autism. This works. And it's like, yeah, because it's being respectful of another human mm-hmm. with another set of abilities and being curious and being committed to empowering them. Mm. What do you think it's like for the person with dementia, like mm-hmm. to step into that psyche for a moment? Because I think that we would immediately project a sense of distress and sadness and depression that, that, that how would one lead a full life if they had a neurodegenerative disorder? And maybe you can speak to that so for a I'm, moment. Yeah. So when I'm living in the moment and I'm more on automatic pilot and I'm doing things that just come to me, I can be really satisfied. Just like when I'm out working in the yard and I'm not thinking about anything, like I have that report that's not finished. I have all that stuff. And instead I am having a rich sensory experience that I'm enjoying. Man, that's the best, mm. you know? And then there's the moment of, oh, crap, what was I supposed to be doing? And we all have those. It's like there was something. What was it? This isn't a totally foreign phenomenon, but now, no matter how I try to recall it in in the systems I use, it just won't come to me. Hmm. Um, And that's a real, it's like, what is wrong with me? And in that moment, I've got to make a choice. Am I going to take a deep breath and go, okay, I'm stuck. All right, let me, what are my resources? Who are my resources? What are my backup plans? Because it turns out that it doesn't disappear like the click of a fingers. It's it's like this, have I started to develop habits and patterns that support my new life? Mm-hmm. Or am I still trying to live the life I don't have anymore? 
You know, this reminds me of, of a very powerful show we did talking to some folks that are, that are physically disabled. Mm-hmm. And I think that, again, culturally, we tend to project on, on that population as well with a sense of pity and say, mm-hmm. ah, it's too bad you can't walk like me or you can't do the things that I do. But yet, all the research points to those that have a disability lead very full lives. There's no, there's no indicator of like lifelong depression because that's a life that can be so deeply felt and lived. And it's also, I think, a power in overcoming disability, which can be so incredible in and of itself. And I just, I want to just highlight what you're saying too, that those that live with, uh, those that live with a kind of neurodegenerative disorder still wake up in the morning and can feel a sense of happiness and peace and aliveness and can be in the moment. And I, I, I think it's important for us all to recognize that. Yeah. And if something else is going on, we might call that depression or we might call it anxiety and let's call it like it might actually be. And how do you work with that? How do you support someone who's in that space? Yes. But it's not about their neurodegeneration. It's about that element that's also added into the mix. And it's like, yeah, it's really hard to get going in the morning. Mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you for a huge favor. I could use your help. And that for many people, it's not about whether they want to get up. It's that I'm in need and I've given you back a sense of value and purpose. And for people living with neurodegeneration that I work with and I work with a lot, that more than anything is what will take you out mm. is to feel that you have no purpose, no value. No one finds you to be of, of worth. And I, I just can't help but stay with some of this stuff for a moment, this philosophically and psychologically, um, which is that we tend to look at people just as a disorder or as an illness, mm-hmm. right? Which to me, or as a disability, which is just... That is just such an unfair angle to take on someone. And it's important for me just to verbalize this too as I think about it, right? I mean, it's just, this is this is important stuff. People living with dementia say, see me first um, and no care about me without me. I'm here. I mean, I'm yes, I'm different. I get it. I, or I may not get it. But are you going to weigh all my value based on this one phenomena that I'm having to live with? I mean, it's not my choice either, but... Can I still be valued? Mm-hmm. Right. And it's so important to find that. And when you don't, it's important to spend time away because I don't need you grieving me when mm. I'm right here. Yeah. What's the kind of environment that, you know, one could thrive in with dementia? Is it, is it lots of social interactions? Is it being in a nice environment? Is it maybe it's having purpose, like you said? I, I'm curious is what, what, what you've noticed works really well in terms of creating the right space for this. Yeah, we need habits and routine because those are the ones that tend to be valuable, but they have to meld and change over time as my abilities shift. But I do need social opportunities, but they have to match my desires and my preferences and my abilities. Mm -hmm. And if I have somebody who's just yammering at me, it's too much. I can't handle it. If we're in a like a, a very busy, loud space, I can't do foreground from background is one of the most common senses people have. I, I can't separate mm-hmm. what I should listen to, what I shouldn't, so I get overwhelmed. Yeah. If there's a lot of movement around me, I get overwhelmed because I can't determine what's okay movement, what what's directed at me, what I should do. So again, being super respectful of the possibility that what has to happen is we have to tune in to what's working for that person at that time and give them a rhythm and a pattern that really does match what what feeds their spirit and what feeds them and feeds us. Mm. Music, storytelling, mm-hmm. art, mm-hmm. Um, interaction. Does Animals. It, okay, yeah. yeah. I mean, is, are that, is that kind of stuff that kind of bring the senses alive? Are, are, are those important kind of tools in any of this? Huge, huge. I would say the one, I know music is this really powerful, wonderful force. And it can actually sometimes get people who haven't been talking to start talking after we do some music. The tricky part is if I've been a professional musician, Mm. I may not be okay with music Mm. because it represents too much of what I've lost of me. And yet in some time and place during my 
my journey, it's very possible I will come back to music and find it again. But it has to be on my terms. Whereas other people can discover music and discover dance and discover art and discover opportunities to socialize in a way they would never have done before. Yeah. You know, I'm so touched kind of just hearing you talk about this and the enthusiasm and kind of the wisdom you've gained. And it makes me wonder, like, talk to me just a little about you doing this work and how you maintain this level of energy and and love and kindness. Like, what what draws you to doing this? I mean, I think a lot of people, it's like, wow, this must be a lot of work. But I, I tell me just about you day in and day out with this stuff. Yeah. So what feeds my spirit and what gives me value is when others can sort of discover the same amazing ability that we all have, I believe. And some of us learn to exercise pretty regularly. So it's just like putting on the right set of clothes for me. I don't have to think about doing it. It's just part of my my habit, my routine, my synaptic pattern. Um, and when I have someone who's unique and really what we would call in a challenging situation, mm. it causes my brain to go, oh, let's see what we can figure out here. Not I have the answer, but oh, this is a curiosity. And so for me, it's the engagement of this that is so empowering for me. And it gives me the energy back that I put in by and I end up with more energy than I started with. So in the beginning of the interview, you mentioned that, I mean, there are, there are potential environmental impacts on, on developing mm-hmm. something like dementia. And mm-hmm. for those that, that feel healthy right now, but, you know, maybe know they, they could be uh, predisposed to something like this, what are things that we can do to just stay, to stay healthy, maybe to try and stave some of this off? Do you have any ideas? Well, we certainly know some things are risk reducers. So exercising regularly, um, giving your body and your brain a workout. I mean, getting blood flow to your brain and varying the pressure and the intensity. It's always a healthy thing because blood vessels feed your brain cells. And so that's a good one. Um, Watching what you're putting in. And so the mind diet or the Mediterranean diet Mm. um, tend to be a better option, looking at how much glucose we're throwing in the system, um, which, yeah, it's a quick fix, but it's not necessarily the healthiest thing for our brains and our bodies. Um, And also looking at social engagement that we enjoy, because when we engage socially, we use a tremendous amount of our brain tissue. Mm. Um, Doing things that are curious and interesting to our brain, try new things, be willing to invest in not knowing and getting better at knowing something because it uses brain power and builds synapses, whether it's physical things uh, or cognitive things or some combination. And then looking at your stress levels and figuring out what's good for you with stress management. Being somewhat stressed off and on is a really healthy thing, but being in distress is really not healthy at all. It releases cortisol and that is the enemy of your brain for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. And I think I, I, I was, it really caught my attention how you mentioned the importance of social interaction. And I think mm-hmm. that one common theme I just seem to come back to on this show, whether it's Harvard's longitudinal study on happiness or anything, is that social interaction remains so key in our health in a way that I don't think we recognized maybe forever. And one of the things that can happen in many cases is the person starts to isolate themselves either due to fear of discovery or difficulty figuring out how to connect and how to initiate. So being supportive in that is of one another in that because it's very easy to get into habits of isolation and not even realize you're doing it. And getting out in nature is a great way to get started in this whole process. What's the outlook for something mm-hmm. like dementia? I mean, if, if you could kind of imagine what where we'll be in 5, 10, maybe even 20 years, um, mm-hmm. what, what do you think? Well, in five years, we're going to be deeper in the soup because uh-huh. <laughs> we have the baby boomers coming on. And our risk pattern is after we hit somewhere in the 60 to 70 range, the risk starts going up. Okay. So we have people living longer. We're going to have more folks. So I hope we figure out how to support one another because the system we have currently is not financially viable. The second thing is that we're learning new things each and every day. There's new theories that I think are probably going to be more more potentially helpful than some of our other patterns in the past of only looking at beta amyloid formations as as the be all and end all. 
Um, so I think we're looking at new ideas like viral load and um, blood brain barrier things and glucose metabolism, all as features in sleep. Oh, I forgot that one. Sure. Oh, yeah. So, you know, I think the outlook isn't as awful as it has been. The tricky part is as long as we have so much ignorance out there about this condition we call dementia, it's going to surprise people and make life miserable for them for quite some time until we start to help people recognize there is life after the diagnosis. We just got to figure it out. Mm. Can you imagine a day where we someday have medications that are effective and that can at least, if not stop it, slow it down? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a maybe. I mean, I live with hope, but until there is cure, there's care. So I, yeah. I hesitate to say because, I mean, I've been in the business now professionally for 40 three years going on 44. And I've got to say the promise has always been there and we're still not there. Um, even the latest things aren't changing the dynamics of actually the condition, really. I'd love to be more optimistic, but I'm not pessimistic. It's just, well, if it happens, that's fantastic. But till then, here's what we have, let's use it. My guest has been Tipa Snow, occupational therapist and also author of Understanding the Changing Brain, a positive approach to dementia care. Um, she's also the founder of Positive Approach to Care, which provides awareness, knowledge, and hands-on skill for dementia care. Tipa, thank you so much for sharing your work and experience with us today. I appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. Still to come, figuring it out, one woman's personal journey with her father's Alzheimer's and how storytelling helped her find purpose. Do you have any experience caretaking someone with Alzheimer's? We'd love for you to share your story with our Facebook community. You can find a link at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined or by searching on Facebook for KCRW Life Examined. We'll be back in a moment. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. Our last guest, Tipa Snow, suggests getting a head start on learning about dementia by reaching out to someone experiencing memory loss, saying that the experience could be of value. The lack of societal support when it came to her father's care inspired our next guest to come up with a solution. After her father's Alzheimer's diagnosis, journalist and Washington correspondent for Time magazine, Jay Newton Small, took a leave of absence to help with his care. She explains how caregiving affected her mother's health and how later her ability to tell her father's story transformed his care and how she now uses this to increase empathy for others. Jay Newton Small is the founder and chief executive officer at Memory Well and formerly a longtime Washington correspondent for Time magazine and a journalist for Bloomberg News. Jay Newton Small, welcome to Life Examined. Thanks so much for having me. I'd love if you could just spend a minute or two describing your experience dealing with a family member suffering from Alzheimer's. What was that like? Um, well, it was long. <laughs> um, my mm. father had Alzheimer's for 15 years before he passed. Um, he was diagnosed at the age of 58, so very early onset while I was still a senior in college. Um, my mother cared for him for the first 10 years. Um, they moved to Florida, to Naples, Florida, and, and, he, um, and, uh, and then after that, my mother actually died of the stress of caregiving. So um, she really was in denial, I think, of my dad's diagnosis um, for a long time. She didn't tell any of their friends. It was news to everybody when my mother died that my father was 10 years into an Alzheimer's diagnosis. And partly that was because I think he was just a very charming, affable Australian guy who called everybody mate and didn't that covered up that he didn't know anybody's names. And um, and partly because I think my mother was just terrified that she would lose her friends in her society because my dad was always the charming one. And so she just wouldn't tell anybody about it. And, and so I ended up like going to all the therapy sessions for her. I ended up going to group therapy and asking the questions that she was too embarrassed to ask or, or didn't want to ask. And then, 
Um, finally, after 10 years, the stress, I think, just got to be too much for her. Um, you know, she was in the process of moving to D.C. so I could help out more with my dad's care when she had a brain aneurysm um, very suddenly and died in 2010. Um, so mm. uh, I became my dad's primary caregiver at that point, And for the last five years of his life, I cared for him um, until he passed in 2015. Mm. Can you talk about your experience just being with your father. My guess is with a lot of caretakers, this is not the future that you imagined for yourself or how you would spend your time or the way you'd want to be with your father. And that I think, you know, that's a really uncomfortable and difficult place to have to end up. Yeah, there's a lot about, you know, my dad that I never thought that I would see or say, you know, um, <laughs> there was a time in his in his life uh, towards the end when I was changing his catheter and I saw more of my father's penis than I ever would have imagined. Mm -hmm. um, and like, you know, there was a time where right after my mom died for probably the first maybe six to nine months, he thought I was my mother because I look a lot like her. And, um, and he would propose and get down on one knee. And, and if I said yes, then he'd want to make out. And if I said oh. no, then his world would collapse because wow. the love of his life was saying no to him. And he would dissolve into this puddle of tears. And, and there was just no good solutions for that. You know, there was nothing that I could do to like make it better for him. And I think that's, what's really hard and wrenching about a lot of this is there's, you, you want to make it better for them. You want to like ease that burden and there's just so little you can do. It seems like there's this, maybe this overwhelming sense of like helplessness, both for him, but also probably for you too. I mean, there, I just hear from so many caregivers, this feeling of isolation or lack of direction or help. Yeah, I do feel like there's, you know, I, I speak pretty publicly about my experience now caregiving for my father and, um, and after every single time I speak about it in an audience, people line up to talk to me afterwards and they're so furtive about it. They kind of look both ways and they're like, well, I had a really similar experience with my insert mother, you know, brother, father, whomever it was. And, and I always really encourage them to talk openly about it. And I know it's something that, look, I don't think my father would particularly like me talking about changing his catheter, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> yeah. um, but if something doesn't come of this, if I felt like for me, if some good didn't come of my experience, if if others couldn't relate to it, if something couldn't be changed given the 15 years that we went through this, then then there, you know, it was a loss of 15 years to me. And so I felt like I needed to be able to talk openly about this and to help others talk openly about this because if we don't speak openly about our needs and how hard this is, then we're never going to get the resources that we need. Mm. One of the shows that we've done on this program that really stuck with me was about the idea of burnout, which became so, you know, really there was a lot of awareness around that during the pandemic and the great resignation. But what, what interested in me is that the first time the burnout was studied, it was actually called caregiving syndrome. And it was noticed that, among caregivers, there was this sense of just kind of flaming out, you know, of growing exhausted, of getting sick, of feeling kind of negative or worthless. I, I, I take it maybe those experiences resonate with you. Yeah. I mean, I, I tried really hard to care for my dad at home after my mother died. I moved him up to Washington to be with me and he was a night wanderer. So he would be up all night wandering around the house and he was always looking for my mom and the, in the months that he thought I was my mother, he would always like want to hop into bed with me and cuddle. And, you know, I was, it was really hard because I, part of, he would never go to sleep unless I let him get into bed, but then he would like, want to like kind of get frisky and I'm like, dad, like it's not an option. Wow. And, um, and there was no way to, to rationalize with him, to explain to him, I'm not my mom. This isn't appropriate. Like, and he just, he wasn't obviously in his right mind. He was at this point, almost 11 years into an Alzheimer's diagnosis. And, um, and I was exhausted. I, I wasn't sleeping. I was working full time at time magazine. I ended up taking family medical leave, yeah. um, for a couple of months through this. Cause I just couldn't handle it. I was just so tired. And, um, I like barely, you know, slept, I barely like had time to shower and, 
and they go through this period um, where they, they call it shadowing, I think, where they, they can't, they don't want to lose sight of you. And it's like you're an island and they're out to sea. And if they lose sight of you, they're afraid they're going to drown. And he like wouldn't even let me go to the bathroom without like he, he was just afraid of losing sight of me at all times. And, and I finally admitted defeat um, after about six months and was like maybe nine months. And I was like, I, I can't, I have, I have to put him into a community. And it yeah. was such a wrenching decision because it, I felt like a failure. I felt like, how could I not care for him myself? How could I not do this? But I, I didn't know what else to do. And I was just so tired and I was kind of at my wits end. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about what resources are available for caregivers? And I mean, not to mention the fact that your mother, you said, died from a stress-related illness. Can, can you just share a little bit about that? Yeah, so I learned later that there's a 2002 Stanford study that shows that 40% of dementia caregivers actually die from the stress of caregiving before the one that they're caregiving for. So it's actually a pretty common thing. Um, I think it's widely recognized that dementia caregiving is probably the most stressful caregiving you can have because it is so hands-on and so physical, requires so much attention all the time. There's so much like stress involved, like you can't allow them to have scissors or sharp things or cut things like, you know, they might cut themselves at a certain point. Stairs were just no longer a possibility for him because he was going to fall down them. Um, and he was too big for me to, to, to sort of help his carry his weight, like when it really, if I needed to. And so that would have been a problem as well. Um, things like, you know, cutting your own food and using knife utensils at a certain point also became kind of impossible, like spoons were okay, but forget like knives and forks. Um, and it just, um, you know, you have to sort of pad everything. It's like, like almost childproofing a house to some mm -hmm. degree for me at least. And you never know what they're going to get into and how they're going to hurt themselves getting into that thing. And so it was like mildly terrifying at all times. I, a couple of times I, um, came home to a house full of gas because my dad, um, was used to cooking on an electric stove in Florida and didn't, couldn't figure out how to use my gas stove and would turn it on and not light it. And then the house would be full of gas, which of course was like a minor miracle that we didn't blow ourselves up. It's yeah. like, yeah. so, um, so everything just became this like crazy world of dangers and stress. And, um, and I, I think some of it, you know, when my mom was going through it, you could get advice and handle it, right? So my dad went through this paranoid phase where he was constantly accusing my mom of stealing his wallet, stealing his money, stealing things. And um, and I went to a group therapy session at a, a sort of church near me in D.C. and sort of was telling the group, like, my mom was having this problem. And this woman in the group, and she was like, oh, my husband went through that. She was like, here's what you do. She's like, just create... Mm you know, 12 fake wallet, like a dozen fake wallets or something. And every time he wants his wallet, just pull out a new one with like blockbuster cards and old video cards. And I was like, really, that'll work. And she was like, yeah, yeah, it worked for my husband. And sure enough, we did it with my dad. And it was like clockwork. Like it was amazing. He'd be like, you stole my wallet. And she'd be like, here's your wallet. And he'd be like, oh, great. And then he'd walk away and be totally fine. So I mean, there's like hacks you can do for this stuff. But like, I think, like finding that network, there just nothing existed where you could you know, just log in and, and ask a bunch of people in a place like, um, you know, tell me like what to do about this or how to, how do you handle that? Like there's no easy hack, I think for a lot of these things. Um, or if there are, it's just all experiential and like finding a group like that, um, at the time for when I was going through with my dad just didn't exist. I mean, mm -hmm. it might exist now. And I think increasingly there are dementia caregiving groups online, but you know, back then, like the Alzheimer's Association website was all just medical stuff, like, you know, research into Alzheimer's and dementia and, and pharma and stuff. Um, and, you know, there wasn't anything for caregivers. I think now there's more, but um, there, it really was like this sort of black hole of like information. And, and look, I'm a journalist and I'm pretty good at Googling and I'm pretty good <laughs> at researching. And, and even I couldn't find out a lot of these things without having to like kind of physically go to support groups for those living with Alzheimer's and dementia. And, and I was lucky that there were a few of them in my neighborhood and like that could help me and help my mom. Mm -hmm. When you were going through this process, really learning how to be a caregiver, was there anything, I mean, that really, that really resonated with you? Was it these kind of, you know, anecdotal tricks and hacks or, or, you know, what, what kind of kept you 
buoyed for as long as you could handle it. I think the permission to that I would eventually gave myself to lie to my dad was really important because um, it ultimately was lying to the disease and not really lying to him, right? So at some points when my mother first died, he'd be like, where's your mom? And I would be like, well, dad, she died. And then he'd like relive her death, which was terrible, you know? Mm. And after 20 minutes of sobbing, I, he would like ask again, where's your mom? And then I tell him again. And it was like this kind of horrible loop that you're in. And finally I was like, I'm just torturing this man. And so I was like, you know, he would ask me, where's your mom? And I'd be like, Oh, she went for coffee. And he'd be like, Oh, okay. Mm. You know, and mm. like, mm. and he was fine. And and then he would ask again and I'd be like, no, no, she went for coffee. And he'd be like, oh, okay. You know, and the same thing when he asked for his parents, I'd be like, Oh, they went for coffee. I wasn't going to make him relive the death of his loved ones over and over again. And I think that that led to like a series of like white lies, you know, that just, it was the things that sort of helped me kind of get through what we were doing. Like, um, you know, at one point he was like, are we going, I'd take him out for lunch from his community. And he'd be like, are we going, where are we going? I'm like, oh, we're going back to the hotel. I would call the community, the hotel. Cause mm-hmm. like he loved hotels and he spent a lot of time in hotels. And so for him living in a hotel was totally normal and fine. You know, in the United Nations, he lived in hotels for years on end in different posts. And so that seemed normal. But if I'd said, oh, we're going back to your dementia community, then he would freak out because he'd be like, I don't have dementia. What are you talking about? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think finding the right ways to just the language to describe these things to him in ways that would fit his reality and avoid a total meltdown for me, like became a necessity and something that were just, it enabled me to kind of still relate to him, still talk to him, still be able to take him out to lunch and and be with him and hang out with him, but not have to like, um, you know, have it be a a wrenching time or a hard time or have like episodes or difficulties. Mm. And again, I I, I just wonder how you would react to this. I'm I'm sitting just with this, this idea that, you know, your life, your one life was just so tremendously altered by this in a way that you did not expect, I have a feeling. And I, there's, I think, a lot of folks out there that kind of have to wrestle with this, almost kind of like existentially, like, okay, here I am suddenly in a world I really did not expect or want to be in. And I'm just wondering, like, how did you react to that? How do you sit with that? What would you tell others that, you know, are suddenly finding themselves there? Because I think that this is going to happen more and more in the way I understand, you know, these these neurodegenerative disorders are cropping up and caretaking is going to become a real part of our lives. Yeah, I think that like you have to kind of just realize that your reality is shifting and their reality is shifting and therefore yours is as well. And there's an expression in Alzheimer's and dementia caregiving where it, you, know, you, you would say you're meeting them where they are. And I, I think where I, when I was unsuccessful was when I was trying to drag him back into my reality and I was trying to correct him and say, no, dad, don't you remember this? Don't you remember that? Or dad, come on. Like you remember how to do this. You remember how to like tie your shoelaces. You remember how to like do X, Y, and Z. Mm. Um, and, and where I was most successful was when I just let it all go and just said, okay, this is where he is now. And I'm going to meet him in that reality. And I'm just going to let him live in that reality. And I'm going to be there with him. And you know, I used to ask him sometimes, um, how old are you today? And sometimes he would answer, he was in his thirties. And if he said that, then I knew it was going to be like a Beatles and Burt Kempfert and Africa kind of day where that's what he was. That's where he was in his thirties. He lived in Africa. He listened to the Beatles and Burt Kempfert. He had a little Volkswagen Beetle and, and those are the things that he would relate to and, and trying to relate to anything else in his life anything more modern, anything besides that was not useful. Like he just wouldn't engage. Mm-hmm. Uh, or if he said 50, then it was going to be like a Simon and Garfunkel and like a Asia kind of day. Cause that's where he lived in, in his fifties was in Asia. But I think it was, you know, trying to rationalize. I tried really hard and it was like the, the source of so much stress when I was like, dad, you can't do this. You can't like control your accounts, your banking, then no dad, you can't drive anymore. No, you can't do these things. And trying to rationalize with him over these things just became impossible. He wasn't going to understand at a certain point. And so there just was like a point where I was like, I'm not going to rationalize with him anymore. Well, finally, I mean, 
you had to put your job at Time Magazine on the back burner, and you started a new business called Memory Well. And it takes your storytelling skills and uses them to recount the story of people's lives. Can you tell us why you felt inspired to do this and maybe talk about the role of storytelling considering you know, everything you had been through with a father that was going through Alzheimer's? Yeah, so um, Memory Well really grew out of my experience with my dad. I moved him into one community. Um, he actually got really violent and got thrown out of that community, which happens to about a quarter of all um, of those living with Alzheimer's and dementia. Um, and then I, and then I, I ultimately moved him into a second community. And when I did, that community asked me to fill out this enormous 20-page questionnaire about his life. And I was, you know, really struggled with that questionnaire. There's um, a banking questionnaire. There's a medical questionnaire. Those weren't hard. But the, the one about his life, I mean, you know, the, the, it, it just was a really hard thing. To, it was sort of like some, the questions were like, tell us about your parents' marriage in like four lines. And you're like, it's like writing haiku. What am I supposed to put here? You know, like they like fought over spicy food and like take drives on Sundays. They met and married in Africa. Like, I don't know. Um, they and so I also didn't have like a lot of faith that the staff would actually be able to read and remember 20 pages of handwritten data points for like the hundred residents in that community. And so instead I, I handed in the form blank and said, look, I'm a writer and I think it's just easier for me and easier for you if you let me write down his story. Um, he was already at 12 years into his diagnosis at this point, so he couldn't really introduce himself that well anymore. And I wanted people to know him. So I wrote one page, I kind of plastered the community with it and it really transformed his care. Um, the staff remembered it, they told each other about it. Um, two of his caregivers were Ethiopian and they'd had no idea that my dad had actually lived in Ethiopia for more than four years mm. early on in his career with the United Nations. And they became his champions. They would sit for hours and ask him what it was like to work with Emperor Haile Selassie and what the Empress was like. So mm. it really transformed his care. And so my company, Memory Well, grew out of that experience. And um, we do it much more broadly now. We do storytelling for seniors generally entering care. Um, we also do a lot of stories for hospice patients and palliative patients. But generally, that is what we do is we tell their stories um, so they can be better introduced to their caregiving staffs, whether they're in acute settings in hospitals or whether they're in long-term care settings. Um, and uh, with the goal of being able to make those connections and build that empathy, which I think the system really, really lacks. That's awesome. Well, it's been a pleasure chatting with Jay Newton Small, founder and chief executive officer at Memory Well. He's also a long-serving Washington correspondent for Time and a journalist for Bloomberg News. Jay, thanks for sharing some personal stories and also your latest work. We appreciate it. Jonathan, thanks so much for having me. All right, that's it for this week. Our producer is Andrea Brody. And do you have any experience as a caretaker for someone with dementia or Alzheimer's? Do the stories you've heard today resonate with what you've experienced? You can find a link to our Facebook group at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Thanks as always for joining us. We'll see you next week.